everyone knows now that the first marriage did break up between them because Natalie caught Robert Wagner with the housekeeper, a man, the butler, um, on the sofa when she got up out of bed one night and he was not in bed. And she ran from the house. She went home to her parents. They knew about it. Her sister knew about it. And Natalie never felt the same. What was once a Hollywood fairy tale known the world over, Robert R.J. Wagner and Natalie Wood's relationship was now hopelessly broken. I think that the story about Robert Wagner that, that exists in Hollywood is how nice and charming and charismatic of, of a person he is. He's stayed in the game all this time, and a lot of that is because people genuinely seem to like him. That said, there are stories here and there that he is putting up a facade and there's a darker personality that exists underneath that. Once Natalie supposedly found RJ in bed with another man, there was no turning back for her. And the knowledge of this drove RJ to some very dark places. Robert Wagner was becoming consumed with his suspicions about Natalie and Warren. And at one point, he's he's admitted in, in his memoirs that he followed you know, Warren Beatty home to his house and he had a gun on him because he was prepared to kill Warren. And he'd been driven to that depth that he, he's admitted that was on his mind. Hello and welcome to Chapter 4 of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. I'm your host, Dylan Howard. Let's let that story sink in a moment. RJ's jealousy ran so deep that in his own memoir, he admitted that he wanted to kill Warren Beatty, not threaten him or fight him, no, kill him. In this chapter, we will attempt to discover just who it was that Natalie married. Was he the ambitious, charismatic heartthrob America loved, or perhaps something much more ominous? We will also explore the circumstances that led to one of Natalie's darkest days, the day she attempted to end her own life. But first, let's turn our attention to RJ. Hollywood historian Scott Hoover explains. Hollywood was the big dream for Robert Wagner. He has said many times that it was the thing that he fantasized about. He was fascinated with the Hollywood that he grew up on, and he was so excited to be a part of it. His co-author of Goodbye Natalie, Goodbye Splendor, Marty Rooley. And in his own autobiography, he talks about, as a child, an incident that happened with a dog when, um, I believe, he left a movie theater. And when um, he was with the dog, people with cameras were flashing, taking pictures, and he felt this surrounding of light and attention that just changed his life. And he knew that's what he wanted in life. To become a star was his main goal. And he wanted to be known. He wanted the attention. He reveled in the attention. And he started hanging out at a golf course where all of the Hollywood greats used to golf. Gary Cooper, Clark Gable, Cary Grant, he saw them, he wanted to be them, he started being a caddy at the golf course, and then he talks about how he used to 
um, put up his collar and wear sunglasses and slick back his hair and walk down Hollywood Boulevard hoping to be discovered. And I do believe that it was the goal, RJ's goal, was to be a star. The qualities that RJ used to get in with the right people were basically his looks. He had the look of that time, the tab hunter, the beach boy, the the boy next door, whatever. He, he fell into those categories. Robert Wagner was is still the ultimate charmer. If he worked with somebody, he would pick out a small piece of um, or something interesting about that person or something funny that they said. And every time he would see that person throughout the years, he would remember, he would connect it to that moment he shared with them and manipulate them. He would use people. He would make them feel special. And this advanced him, so people started to like him. Robert Wagner got in early. He got in early with the greats of Hollywood, and they carried him. So Robert Wagner did use people in that respect. He hooked up with Agent Henry Wilson, known to um, handle a, a lot of stars. Henry Wilson was incredibly powerful, but that didn't change the fact that RJ was one of hundreds of young, good-looking, talented actors, all fighting for the same roles. And the studio actually relished in reminding them often just how replaceable they were. In Warren G. Harris's book, Natalie and RJ, RJ is quoted as saying, one of the little tortures the studio used in case you got out of hand was to have another guy who looked just like you standing around as a reminder that you were easily replaceable. And the cold fact was, you were. I'm Dr. Cooper Lawrence. Um, my PhD is in developmental psychology. RJ was of a generation that men started having eating disorders and insecurities that were coming out in other ways. And it was because they were being controlled by a studio system that valued them for their looks and not their talent and not their abilities. It raises any level of narcissism that you might have to these exorbitant levels just because it's the only way you know to survive. So the more people value me for the things, the superficial, the more value I'm going to give myself. Wilson finally got RJ a decent role, as RJ was cast in 1952's A Song in My Heart. This movie catapulted the young actor to the next level of his career and made him a teen heartthrob. Hi everyone, today we are excited to welcome Robert Wagner to Media Mayhem. So when you first start in the, in the business, like what, where, how is the business doing and sort of where were they in terms of, of new people coming into town? Well, I th they were always encouraging new actors. They had, every studio had a young contract list. They were always developing young talent and bringing them in and putting them under the contract. And I was very fortunate because the teenagers at that time, you know, responded to me very positively as they did with uh, Tony Curtis and uh, Rock and myself and Tab Hunter. We were kind of the Bobby, we were the Bobby Sox idols of that time. <laughs> and it was great. <laughs> it was sensational. Remember when Natalie wrote about first bumping into RJ? How she walked by him and turned around to look at him? 
That was during this time in his career. And although this moment was forever etched in Natalie's memory, Robert was 18 and far too busy dating older women, like legendary actress Barbara Stanwyck, 20 years his senior, to notice. But I have to wonder just how much of this relationship was based on real love and how much of it was transactional for RJ. His main goal in life at that point was fame, and an actress of Stanwyck's calibre certainly could help him attain it, or so he thought, but before that could happen, the relationship would come to an abrupt end. Back then, the studios frowned on a romance between an older woman and a young man, and therefore RJ had to pick between his career or his relationship. RJ is definitely the type of guy who always kept his eye on the prize, and that prize had to belong to him. He wanted to be a Hollywood great. Now, in RJ's autobiography, you know, he made it sound as if this was a relationship, his, that he was in love with her, and it went on for a couple of years, and the studios didn't like it. In actuality, I believe it was Liz Smith, the famous gossip columnist, that Barbara Stanwyck actually told before she died that she was with R.J. a couple of times, that it didn't last more than a couple of weeks. And that's my take on the Barbara Stanwyck story. It's fake. Hi, my name is Dr. Gilda Carl, and I'm a relationship expert I'm an author. My latest book is Don't Lie on Your Back for a Guy Who Doesn't Have Yours. An opportunist is a manipulator because he sees the end result, not the person for who the person is. It's the person who isn't deep enough to see a person for who she may be, but will look upon this person as a stepping stone for his own gratification, whether that's career or financial reward or something else. It is this kind of career focus that causes some to question Robert's intentions when taking Natalie Wood on a date, who was the hottest young actress in Hollywood. Did he really have a genuine interest in her? Or was he pursuing Natalie as a thinly veiled plan to bolster his career? Who better to marry to advance your career than the legendary in her own time, Natalie Wood. And that's how Robert Wagner used Natalie Wood for the first marriage. After Natalie caught RJ cheating, she was absolutely devastated. But she attempted to put her life back together. She left him immediately and moved into one of her other properties. For the first time in her life, Natalie was truly on her own. Lana, Natalie's sister, explains. I think she had a lot of fun. I think she may have been a little bit too anxious to fill the void. Um, There were some missteps with some some guys. She had lots of parties. Um, She drew in other people. The circle became wider. She read different things, she met different people, she traveled more. She seemed all right. She seemed okay. She never let a tear spill. With help from her therapist, Natalie was able to move on from her divorce to RJ 
and perhaps prepared for the next man in her life. That man was none other than Warren Beatty. According to Natalie, she and Warren had not dated while filming Splendour in the Grass, as many had suggested, but now they were an item. However, this relationship also became a source of frustration for Natalie. Oh, Warren, oh my God. I was living with Natalie when she was dating Warren. I adore Warren, by the way. I, I seriously do. He just, they did nothing but fight. He never arrived on time. He always found somebody else to hang around with. Um, they, yeah, they, they really fought. They really fought. And um, I, of course, then became antagonistic towards him as well because of all the fighting and all the tears and all the, yeah, that was a very tempestuous relationship. When we became involved, he was depressed because his sweetheart had gone to England for a film and I was devastated over the end of my marriage. We both brought problems to the relationship. Warren and I spent hours ruminating and analyzing each other. Now I'll start, huh? My, my name is, is Sugar Ginger Blymeyer, and um, I worked as a hairstylist in the movie business for over 40 years. I met Natalie Wood when I was young, and I really loved her. She really was great. Started with her on Love of the Proper Stranger. I would hear her on the phone and, and kind of being aggravated. And she probably said, you know, he won't let me know what's going on. I, I got the sense, and I remember her saying that it was driving her crazy because she, she was always ready on time, you know, and uh, he wasn't. Warren was driving her crazy. You know, she'd, he'd never tell her until the last minute if he's going to show up for something. She'd be on the phone wondering. He was always kind of antagonizing her. And, and that was surprising because, you know, she was pretty secure. But, you know, Warren wanted to go out with every woman in Hollywood and beyond that. So he, I, I guess it was kind of a challenge for her. And then finally that kind of died down. After my divorce, I was looking for the Rock of Gibraltar. Instead, I discovered Mount Vesuvius, a live volcano with eruptions each day. And I contributed my share of fireworks, too. Neither Warren or I was ready for a permanent relationship. Our affair was a collision from start to finish. A combination three-ring circus and five-alarm fire. At bottom, we both knew it was only an interim relationship, and neither of us seriously considered marriage. What Natalie got out of the relationship with Warren was, I think, it, it clarified for her um, some of her ideals, um, her moral code, things that she would and, and did not want in her life. It, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't all negative, it was just short-lived. Although upset by the breakup with Warren, Natalie at this point was in search of something else, something much more elusive. She was in search of herself. In analysis, I have tried to unravel the real cause and effect of my behaviour. I had grown up believing that happiness depended on the approval of others, not yourself. My external life seemed like everything a girl could want. But I had ridden an unending merry-go-round since the age of four. Now the carousel needed repairs, 
and I was losing my emotional balance from the dizzying ride. I started to realize in analysis that I had to find out who I was and what I wanted, that the answer must come from within. I no longer could expect a magical Prince Charming, or even a good doctor, to wave a magic wand and make the pain go away. To sum it up, she was, she was searching, she was, she was trying to see who she was. She wanted to know herself, but um, she wasn't unhappy about it, ever. I mean, she always had a time set aside to go and see her doctor, and she would take it as her lunch hour or whatever was possible, but yeah, in the contract, whatever she was working on, they had to release her for a certain amount of time so that she could go into um, have her session with her therapist. Rebecca Sullivan is a professor of film and media at the University of Calgary. She explains. You know, by the mid-1960s, she was doing uh, as much as like two sessions a day. And in fact, um, you know, legend goes that she turned down the lead role in Bonnie and Clyde because it would be too long and too far from her therapist. She put a real emphasis on her own mental health when she hit a point where she just felt she couldn't um, couldn't control her life. My mom suddenly she called me and said put together an outfit grab something I'll meet me at Cedars and I'm like what on earth he said she said that'll be giant killers I'm like good god um, she was there under a, an assumed name and um put away in a bed, in a little room, and um, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. She was um, not in good shape. She was, you know, sitting there with a scrubbed face and looked devastated. You wouldn't recognize her. You really wouldn't have recognized her. Um, she was that in, in that much turmoil and unhappiness. Can I ask, uh, how did she try to do it? Pills, sleeping pills. But then she got scared. Did she ever tell you what was going on with her? Like what caused her, what led her to? Uh, Jay, she basically fell in love with someone else that, um, it, that would not work out. After this terrible night, Natalie realised once and for all that she had to start taking care of herself in a way she never had before. For the first time ever, Natalie Wood stepped away from the silver screen. After years of therapy and time with her family and friends, Natalie was finally ready to make her comeback. When she came back to do Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice, and interviewer said, hey, where have you been? Her answer always was, you know, where have I been? I've been out working on me, finding out who I am. After three long years, Natalie was back in the limelight, but she was being very careful with what she was willing to commit to. When she reemerges, she has a lot more control over her professional life. Um, she can. She has more control over picking her, her film. She's able to work outside of Warner Brothers because she's just exhausted and fed up with being forced into roles 
that profit the industry, uh, profit the studio. But it wasn't just her acting career that was back on track. In 1969, Natalie met the next great love of her life, film producer Richard Gregson. Must have met in London because she was also talking about Richard Johnson, who I thought was phenomenal. I love Richard Johnson. And that was actually, that was her list, is the two pieces of paper was Richard Gregson and Richard Johnson. And we spent all this time saying, okay, here, are the, these are the good points, these are the bad points, these are the good points, these are the bad points. And we spent like an entire afternoon comparing and trying to help her make her decision as to who she was, she was going to date seriously. And then, she, and then she said to me, well, you know, I've already slept with Richard Gregson. I said, then you made your decision without me. I said, oh, okay, because I was gonna vote for Richard Johnson. When Natalie found out that she was at last going to have a baby, I, it was like everything she'd ever wanted in life finally came to her at, at last great serenity, deep happiness. Yeah, she, she was beyond overjoyed, doesn't explain how much it meant to her. Natalie wasn't the only one who had seemed to find happiness. RJ had also remarried and had a daughter with actress Marion Marshall. For the moment, it seemed Natalie and RJ had moved on from one another to find love and stability in others. But as we'll soon find out, even though RJ and Natalie clearly couldn't live together, they also couldn't live without each other. On the next Fatal Voyage... I still don't accept that because I would have probably have felt better if she'd said, I've missed him horribly, he is the man I want to be with, I'm madly in love, any of those things, but not the devil, you know, and the devil you don't. That's how you describe a relationship? The hell was she doing it for? If you or anyone you know is in crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It is a free 24-hour hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Your call will be connected to the crisis centre nearest to you. Fatal Voyage is executive produced and hosted by me, Dylan Howard, and American Media Incorporated. Executive producers include Kelly Garner and Carolina Saavedra from Treefort Media. Editing, scoring and original music by Tom Monaghan. Additional editing by Eva Rystead. The series is mixed and engineered by Stephen Cologne. Make sure to subscribe to Fatal Voyage wherever you get podcasts.